This week on the podcast, talking to one of our own whalers about her journey through the H-1B to green card process. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm here with none other than our technical creative director, and when our uh, our longtime employee and internal expert on the H-1B process. How's it going, Anne? It's going really well. I think I'm uh, feeling on top of the world after the news we got yesterday. Well, I feel like you just gave away, you gave away the story in the first line. Uh, yeah, I have to. <laughs> what happened? What happened yesterday? Yesterday, a long time coming, we got a notice from USCIS, which stands for United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, that uh, letting us know that our uh, green card, employment-based green card application was approved. Wow. Uh, let me guess, this process wasn't just like going and getting an envelope stamped, was it? It was many envelopes stamped <laughs> over the years. You and I know this. We spent a lot of time at FedEx. Yeah. All right. So let's go back uh, in time. First off, we are thrilled, beyond thrilled, that this came through during one of the, I'd say, in recent history's most aggressive administrations on limiting immigration into our yep. country, uh, which is exactly why we chose this time, because we're strategists. <laughs> I will say, and you showed up to Holwell over five years ago, and during that time, you were not officially a citizen. Is that correct? Yep, I was not a citizen. I was on visa and I'm still not a citizen, uh, but we have gone through a lot of iterations of my status to uh, essentially allow me to work at Holwell, continue to live in this country and contribute to this country. On our side of the fence, what happened in my narrative is that Anne was an amazing early, early Holwell employee and she let us know right away that, guess what? My student visa is expiring. Many people here on a student visa, and that's what keeps them in the country. And then they have to make this leap, it seems, to the world of H-1B. And I'm going to let Anne explain what exactly an H-1B is. Yeah, in English, an H-1B is a specialty a visa for workers from another country who wants to stay and work in the U.S. And the, the thing behind this is that it sounds like it's something that most countries should give out to high-skilled workers to fulfill the demand for job shortages in tech and data, but the United States decides to have a cap on the number of H-1Bs that are given out each year, and that cap is reduced show, since uh, the 90s. It was at one point over to close to 200,000 visas available per year, and in recent the past decade or so, it's been reduced to 65,000 visas available. And the interesting thing is the number of applications that goes through each year always, always exceeds that number by about two to three times higher than the quota. So you're essentially flipping a coin, but less of a chance in flipping a coin to, to get the visa to stay at a job that you love. At the time, we were staring down the odds, as I remember them, of one in three chance that even if we had all of the paperwork perfectly dotted, signed, sealed, and the need demonstrated um, that we had a one in three chance in that moment. Is that is that about right? 
Yeah, so uh, we, in hindsight, I'm looking at 2015's data, there were 172,000 applications for 65,000 slots. Uh, and then 20,000 of that's for, for a master's cap, but ours is, was one in three chance. And the years following that, the odds just got even worse. Uh, up to, in 2017, 236,000 applications for the same number of available visas. So consider ourselves lucky. I remember sitting down with Anne and saying, uh, there's no plan B. There's only plan A here. <laughs> and plan A is we're just going to, we're just going to win that. Uh, we're we're just going to win that one and three. Uh, that's our plan. And I never had a plan B. I don't know what plan B was. And sitting this many years later, uh, I, I just am, I'm so thrilled that just from the whole whale narrative and, and our story and our team and how important you are to our team, that like it came down to a worse than a coin flip for it. I, it's, I'm glad I don't have to think about it too often because the amount of things that have to go right to succeed as a company, uh, <laughs> to also rely on the U.S. government approving what shouldn't even be an issue is mind-boggling to me. Yeah, I think we were so incredibly lucky. We did everything right, but it, so much of it came down to luck. And you know, the other 120,000 people did the right things too, but they weren't lucky. And we somehow uh, got that lottery ticket. And I think that was one of the one of the most thrilling moments uh, of my experience at Whole Yeah, it was a fist pump moment for me, for <laughs> sure. I want to take a step back and, and a couple layers of this to look at just H-1B as a policy. It makes zero sense to me why we wouldn't want skilled individuals who are going to be contributors to our economy, our intellectual property, starting the next Googles, supporting organizations like ours, which support hundreds and thousands of nonprofits, uh, because frankly, uh, it doesn't make sense to close the door on putting talented people on your team. And it's exactly what we do. And it's uh, all lumped together in the most bizarre way. Like strategically, ethically, uh, there's no world in which it makes sense to me to to close the number of H-1Bs available. And it's not taking jobs away. You're increasing the amount of jobs. Whole Whale has been able to hire more people as a result of having someone like you, talented on our team, growing our company. It, there's no math. It doesn't work. And that's, I, I, you know, rant over, but that's how I see it from where I sit. Yeah, I agree. And quite frankly, no country in the world has really figured out the high-skilled worker immigration policy. But just looking up north, when you're comparing to our neighbors up in Canada, the percentage of employment-related immigration is 36% of all immigration cases. Uh, George, what, guess what percentage our country, the U.S., is for with regards to employment-based immigration? Oh, God. Less than 10%. Just give me a number. 5%. 5%. Uh, right in between. So it's 9%. And this is data from 2011. Uh, there is more updated data there, but it's a, such a small percentage. And we're literally pissing away talent where Canada is yeah. camping out at colleges and saying, if you don't can't stay in the U.S., come work for us. Um, and so, it really doesn't so smart. Sense. Come here, by the way, to the U.S., get educated, learn the best things, take all those skills, and then yeah, run away. That's called, that's called a brain drain. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is the smartest foreign policy strategy ever. Now, all right. I want to bring it back to something very, very practical, very, very tactical for organizations that may have individuals that are going to need an H-1B. Walk me through advice. I want strict advice. So somebody listening right now is like, hey, this, this podcast had H-1B in the title. 
what is it that Whole Whale did that gave us the highest chance of success? What are some of the things that that person needs to think about? And then I'm going to turn it around and say, what are some of the things that organizations or nonprofits need to think about when going and considering the H-1B ecosystem? Yeah, I, I would say the first thing to start with, uh, and this is something that I have discussed with our team internally as well when we're hiring, is we're not going to put all the weight into whether or not someone needs uh, needs the petition to stay and work at our company. We're gonna, going to first look at their talent and their, their drive, their passion. And then if they happen to need an H-1B, we will deal with it. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. Uh, a lot of companies use the need for an H-1B petition to filter out candidates. And I think that's just the wrong way to go about growing a company. That is not something we do here. And I am deeply grateful for our approach. And that's why I was uh, in the first place, had an internship at Whole and then my OPT, which is the af- the optional practical training after my uh, after graduating from college. So that's on the organization. I would say don't don't use H one B as a filter for your candidates. And then for people in in the position that I was at a few years ago after college, do all the research you need. This is like navigating healthcare. Even with the highest level of literacy and education, it is not easy to navigate. So try to to do as much research as you can. There's a lot of law firms out there who's playing the SEO game, putting out resources on how uh, the process works for an H-1B. And the government, I think, is intentionally not doing that. They don't really need to because there's a lot of law firms out there already filling in this information and the government doesn't want to risk putting out information that may be leaning one way or the other. Uh, So do all the research you can. There's also a lot of forums where people in your position are commiserating on their situation. Uh, And so getting a a good understanding of the process, exactly what needs to happen, every single form and doing things legally and doing things right early on is the the best way for you to prepare yourself as a candidate. Uh, And then I think one of the decisions we made uh, before applying for H-1B was to engage with a lawyer. I had thought very strongly as someone who has figured out things by ourselves through YouTube and the SEO of the world that we don't need help, but this is a this is money well spent. This is where someone who's well very well versed in the process can walk us through what we can we can gloss over and what to really pay attention to. So that has to do with writing a job description that is valid and uh, having uh, gathering your qualifications to prove that you are uh, you have the right skills and requirements for that job. And so preparation. Uh, on the candidate side and then uh, engaging with a lawyer and being very communicative throughout the process. It's sort of like need blind admissions. It is letting the best candidates come in and then after the fact finding out. And we actually just found out that one of our recent hires actually may need uh, Mm an H-1B process. Uh, I I personally am proud to say uh, I have successfully attempted three and landed three H-1Bs for three separate people. So uh, I, I am I'm doing my part for the team. I want to go to this uh, this like the, the paperwork and the back and forth. I think um, having having outside help and expertise gives you uh, extra hands as well as opinion on whether or not what you put together is going to hold water uh, with um, with an eye toward knowing what the you know bureaucratic engine that's going to consume this, uh, how they're going to view your application. And so, you know, in, in doing that, you know, that, that makes sense. Now, just fundamentals here, you get an H-1B approved, how long does that last? What does that mean? Like once, once it's 
uh, approved for someone? Uh, H-1B is valid for three years, but you have the option to extend for another three years. So the length of that in total is six years on an H-1B status with uh, with one employer. So you can obviously change employers throughout, but if you want to work with one uh, company, you can do that for up to six years. And the key difference here is that between what I'm saying uh, with H-1B and permanent residence is H-1B is temporary. So you're considered a non-immigrant uh, or, in, or in other words, alien, which is what a great word to be using to describe humans. Uh, so th there is a limit to how long you can stay and work for a company under H-1B. And so that is why uh, through halfway through my first H-1B, uh, I brought up to you the idea of going through and pursuing a employment-based green card permanent residency. Why, why did you start to lean toward that as the, the solution? This is just uh, re-upping this H-1B. We did re-up the H-1B, but then that gives me a cap of only being able to work and grow whole well up until 2021. And I do believe that there's a world where I can contribute to whole well beyond that. I don't want to be limited to just that uh, length until 2021. And that there's a world where if I didn't get to stay, I'd have to upend my life in New York, uh, leave my dog here, my family, my friends, everyone, the life I'd built here. And that's, that would, as I imagine that, that's a pretty devastating moment considering that I have lived in the States more longer than I've lived anywhere in the world, including Vietnam, where I hold a passport. And I, you know, having worked through four, lived through four types of visas throughout my life, over 13 years here, it, just, it makes sense to me that I, I can extend my runway and have the option to live here and contribute or go to other parts of the world and, and you know, do some awesome stuff there. But I didn't want to close the door at all. Yeah, I want to approach some elephants in the room. Um, just head on here. Uh, in your narrative there, it seems very clear that there is a, a lock-in value, an element that, crap, once this company, Whole sort of sponsored that H-1B and had that H-1B, you know, what happened in that event that, like, you got fired or wanted to leave the organization? Is it like you'd be, you know, deported that very next day? Like, what goes through your mind versus what is the actual tangible reality? I never plan on being fired, so I didn't really have to worry about the details. <laughs> Do good work. Uh, but I, I, of course, I did look into details as an over planner. I need to, to look and understand what happens if employment is terminated because that's all that my status is riding on. And so I believe that in th those situations, there is a grace period where you can stay, but then you have to leave the country at a certain amount of time. I think the employer has to pay for the flight, so at least you get a free flight to go back to your country. Uh, but yeah, that essentially closes the door unless I, I want to go and pursue this H-1B process with another company again and essentially start from scratch and roll the dice and see if I get it. And so that was yeah. never in the books. I think there's a carryover. There's definitely a window of like three to six months and yeah. checking our, we can, we'll have links in there. But the ultimate thing is like, you'd have to, no matter what, get that next company and it wouldn't be like reapplying, but that next company would have to agree to carry that H-1B and submit. Uh, enough paperwork to to make sure you're maintained, but it's mm -hmm. um, you know, think about the lock-in value right now of like anytime anyone has ever said like I have to stay in my job because of like the healthcare coverage. Like now imagine like not just healthcare, but like you would literally have a ticking clock, however long it is, of you being essentially kicked out of the country. Like that's it seems like that's some heavy stakes to weigh on someone. Mm -hmm. Am I reading that wrong? It's not incorrect, but I think the other, keeping in mind that as 
someone on H-1B, you have the option to apply to other jobs. And your H-1B status, you would be exempt in the next employer when they carry over and offer you a, an employment, for example, for a role at their company. So essentially, if another company had a, approached me and a, offered me a job, they can a petition for my H-1B, but I wouldn't have to go through the quota again. And so it is possible to be switching employers. It is by no means any kind of locking in without giving H-1B uh, foreign workers freedom to explore other options. Uh, but I, I will say like the, the greatest thing about being at Whole Whale is that my end goal was never permanent residency or a green card. I, the primary goal is to do good work and to expand my skills. And somehow along the way, we got these processes to kick in and we've been very lucky with them. So during the waiting periods, like, I, I have no control over who's reviewing my application in order to move the application along. But I know I can still do good work at the company, grow the company, do volunteering stuff that is in my control. Uh, so, and somehow all of that worked out. And so the luck component just came in and it was never at the forefront that bore me down all these years. Going back in time, uh, why didn't we just go for this business green card thing versus an H-1B from, from the outset? I think there were some timing implications as going right after OPT into a green card. I don't think I would have been able to work immediately. The lawyers correct me if I'm wrong, but there, I did a lot of research on this and was not the best bridge after college. Also, why would you as an employer have an incentive to sponsor me full-time without seeing my potential just yet? So at the moment I was, after college, I was I had only worked at Whole Whale on a part-time basis. You didn't really see the, I, I didn't start running the New York office until we started the the green card process. So, you know, I think uh, both sides, um, it just didn't make sense at the time. And I didn't want to be fully going through this process. Who know how long it would take? I, our current process took three years, but this is just, again, luck. There's no playbook to let you know the, the ex expected timeline. Yeah. What were our odds on the green card? Uh, odds on the green card is a lot less up to chances than H-1B. The odds there mostly is around timing and processing. And I truly believe that in this administration, there are still earnest, hardworking people moving applications along. Uh, and the only encounter that I, I had with an officer who processed my application is at the very final moment at the interview for the adjustment of status interview. I was expecting the worst going into that. I was expecting windowless rooms and like mean authority figures. But it, this the officer ended up being incredibly, incredibly friendly. We had some jokes going on about the name Whole Whale. And you know, it was such a relief to see that there are people who care about this despite the, the cover of who you see in the news. Um, the people doing the day-to-day the -day work um, certainly aren't necessarily representative of uh, you know, the, the policy at the top. The quotas and policies may, may be shifted. That's yeah, nice to hear, at least as a as a U.S. citizen here paying our taxes. <laughs> yep, and I'm also, uh, I'll be happy to share what happened during the interview in our show notes. Ooh, what happened during the, the, the tantalizing tell-all. This is episode 147. You're going to want to go and find that. No, this is 148, actually. 148, yeah. And you'll figure that out. Uh, another elephant in the room is that there's somebody listening right now, um, and even intelligent people I've talked to, uh, that say, wait a minute, why are you going through and hiring H-1B people, George? Uh, that is literally like a U.S. job that you definitely could have hired for and, and found in this role. Like, what is your response to that? You're saying buy American, hire American? Well, Trump did roll out that uh, executive order. Um, 
but all jokes aside, I, I will say that if you if your company is really dedicated to hiring for diversity, having different perspectives in your team, then hiring H1B and foreign worker is a no-brainer. That is one way, that's a sure way to bring in diversity and perspectives from people who have lived in different countries and can contribute in ways that perhaps uh, is uh, a lot of people who have grown up here will not be able to, to contribute. So that is my main uh, argument for hiring for H1B. And also the other thing is if, if you're having a really hard time filling in a certain role, then this foreign worker comes along and can fulfill those roles. And it's also, again, a no brainer. if They are able to satisfy the job requirements. Then, um, and I, I will say like the, the process for H1B and EB3, which is the, the green card process does not completely say no to international workers, but it is a way of saying thank you next by impeding the process, by putting barriers to this. Uh, so as we have gone through the process, if you're really behind someone and wanting to hire them, uh, shelling out a few thousand dollars and a bit of your time to go through this process in order to retain talent for years to come to grow your company, the ROI on that I think is also very high. Yeah, and part of the process quite literally uh, for applying for this H-1B is writing up the job description that yeah. this person has at the time with the salary expectation and exactly the rules and responsibilities, you're taking that verbatim. And then we had to pay, and this is also kind of stupid, but we had to pay to post that in the New York Times and document that it ran in the, uh, you know, the, the sort of help sections there. And I will say, and, and post in two other places and prove that we posted in two other places and document how many applica applications we got in. And frankly, at that time, I was also excited. I was like, well, maybe we'll get like other applicants that can fit other jobs that aren't exactly this. But we, and this is, I don't know what this says about either your job or the market or our company. Uh, I literally got maybe uh, two qualified-ish candidates and one like wasn't in New York. So I was like, you have to be here. Uh, so, you know, when we talk about like the specialty and the specialization of roles, somebody who knows creative, who knows project management, who knows nonprofits, who is able to speak to these abilities, like you begin to narrow down to a very, very fine point, um, you know, available talent. And guess what? Our, you know, our unemployment rates are historical lows. And even before that, the, the talent pool uh, available for the specialty types of jobs we need in a data and tech ecosystem, like none other before, uh, is only making it uh, more competitive and harder for companies like Whole Whale to, to find talent at the level that we need. And the other thing I will add is that even in this administration, the, the, the immigration policies that has been uh, released or pushed out in the, the last few years are disproportionately affecting the most vulnerable population. So for us, when we look at H-1B and EB-3, it's the process has not gotten any easier, but we're not as affected uh, as other types of immigrants that that you see on the news, unfortunately. Um, and if anything, the the government has made the H-1B process a bit more efficient. So before we would have to send in complete applications for H-1B, and then if you get rejected, too bad. All of your energy has gone to waste. But there was a new uh, policy I think in the past year or so that where you only need to put your name in the hat. And then if only of your name, you get drawn and picked for the H-1B, then you complete the rest of the application, which saves a bit of time. And so 
yeah, I think there's a bit more efficiency gained, but it is not a perfect process. It's so silly to have to prove that there's no other American who can do my job because of perhaps the job description that's overfit or one way or the other or the job market signals. Uh, it's not an imperfect process, but I do think that having an empathetic person in a company who vouches for you uh, will be half the game. Yeah, and as you sit there as a as an executive or HR director, considering like, oh, gosh, it seems like there are legal fees and administrative fees associated with that. Take a step back. If you have a top player, an A player on your team, do you realize that the cost of hiring, let's say, a D player or C player uh, is astronomical? Do you realize how hard it is to hire in terms of the amount of interviews, amount of time involved with that? Calculate that number before saying, you know what, we're not going to go for an H-1B or even attempt uh, for this person because it's too much money. It's too much money to lose talent off of a team when you really uh, do the math. So you had already proved yourself at the time. And so in my mind, the math wasn't just like, oh, here's the open field. Like I already have a known quantity, an A player who's producing, you know, 5X what previous people have been able to do in this role. So it's not even just that it was such a no-brainer investment, even when we had a small budget to, to make that decision. So uh, I think there may be some incorrect accounting done when it comes to like um, the true cost of applying for this H-1B and, and what is involved versus the cost of hiring somebody new, uh, unknown, and, and by the way, not necessarily even bringing close to the level, as you mentioned, uh, of diversity and outside skill. George, flipping this question back to you, we we could have just continued and cruised through with my H-1B all the way until 2021. So what was going through your head when I brought up the idea of pursuing going after a, an employment-based green card? Oh, I thought it was a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Look yeah. where we are now. You know, what I what I like, when I, the thought in the back of my mind always was that in some ways you were being forced to, to stay here because this H-1B issue we noted before of that it is difficult to transfer and move. Uh, I am of the mindset that like I, I wanted you to have the ultimate freedom to work here because you wanted to. And also I saw it because you asked and I pay attention when you ask things, because you asked, I could tell that it meant a lot to you and that if we could achieve that, it would be something that you would be forever sort of like grateful that we were making that commitment to you. And so like, you know, we could talk about salary negotiations and whatever, or like, oh, am I trying to get equity in the company? But you're like, this is a thing I value disproportionately. And I love this idea that we would be able to at least attempt it because of the assets that we had. And then ultimately, like, now it's been a day and you haven't left us yet. <laughs> <laughs> although, although the card hasn't been mailed to you yet, so we'll see. Um, but I, I love this idea of uh, getting you to that level as a thank you. I mean, you've been here uh, over five years, and I'm like beyond thrilled that we uh, we achieved this and uh, a real feather in our cap. And also, it's a signal to, frankly, people we just hired or will in the future that like, no, no, no. Once you're here, we're you know we're committed to this, um, even if it isn't in the best interest of the company. The best interest of the company is locking in value, keeping you here. Uh, but I think we're playing a a, a longer uh, a longer tail game. I'm looking back at my notes, and we had the first conversation we had about employment-based green card was in January of 2017. That oh, was a, a, a big moment in our country's history. And I-, I <laughs> You wanted like, to make sure the deck was stacked against us. Oh, yeah. 
Well, we were so lucky that H-1B process was during the Obama administration. So at least I got that done and locked in early on. But I figured who knows what's going to happen in the next eight years. And so if not now, then when? In t- early 2017, I thought, we'd let's do this now because if there's any immigration policy changes around H-1B or EB-3, that would take a few years to, to see it fully rolled out. Uh, I want to make sure we get ahead of the curve. And I appreciate that you jumped on that opportunity as well. Moving in to our rapid fire because we do rapid fire with our guests. Are, are you prepared? I guess I am now. Doesn't matter. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the past year? We have started using, actually, we built this thing called Polytweet's Twitter advocacy tool for nonprofits that pulls from the Google Civics API. Highly recommend that. We've been using it for some of our clients. Talk to me about a tech issue that you are currently battling with. Uh, the ongoing tech issue that we're battling with, usually that we see a lot in, among nonprofits, is just the integration among tech tools. So that is your CRM and how it talks to your email system and then how it talks to your website. It's an ongoing, ongoing battle. And there's a a basic script that happens to every client, but there's always a little nuance that needs to be tailored. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? Oh, I am so excited selfishly, disproportionately so to apply for global entry and TSA pre-check with my upcoming green card. You have no no idea how excited I am for that. You are such a travel geek. <laughs> Talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that now shapes the way you do things today. I once wiped out a client's entire email database. And this goes to show, don't rely too much on the tool. Always back things up, document everything, and uh, measure twice, cut once. Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Yes. If I were to put you in a hot tub time machine and went back to the beginning of your work with Whole Whale, what advice would you give yourself? I uh, Early on, I think I was very happy just doing the work executing. I would have asked for more leadership responsibilities, which somehow now I do have, but I think I could have uh, forced the issue a bit sooner. What is something that you think either you or your organization should stop doing? Oh, my organization. We should stop eating at our desk for lunch. That is the one thing that our team has said. Lunch, having lunch together is a nice way to bond. If I gave you a Harry Potter-style wand to wave across the social impact sector, what would it do? This ties into some government policies, but I would love for there to be a way for foreign workers to have a pathway into working at nonprofits and social impact organizations more easily without having to rely on luck. How did you get started in the social impact sector? I had an interesting upbringing. I grew up all over the world. My dad was a diplomat for Vietnam, and so I had always seen social impact as something that I wanted to do. And then I Googled something, and I met somebody who pointed me to Whole Whale. What advice would you give college grads currently looking to enter the social impact sector? Showing up is half the game. You have got to show up, especially if you're in big cities like New York. Go out and meet people. Talk to them with an earnest, uh, with curiosity. And then if jobs comes along, they will, but you will learn so much and be inspired by humans around you. What career advice did your parents give you that you either followed or chose not to follow? I followed their example by observing them. My mom had a a wonderful work culture with uh, people that she worked with who are very close to her. So I always wanted to work in in a group that is supportive, kind, generous to each other. And my dad had amazing work ethics and life isn't always fair, but the best thing you can do like he did is to work hard and be honest. All right. The final question is always, how do people find you? How do people help you? I can jump in also and say this is episode 148, and Anne has promised to create a bunch of resources 
for H1B seekers and H1B, H1B curious. And EB3 uh, as well. EB3. And EB3 and a whole bunch of other R2D2s um, for you. All the Those acronyms. Uh, any final, final words before we sign off, Anne? Uh, for every, anyone looking to stay and work and contribute in this country, my heart goes out to you. It's a hard process, but hang in there, and the best thing you can do is make sure uh, you're, you're learning and growing uh, in your role. Anne, we're thrilled that you're staying with us, even though you're getting this card, and maybe we'll have a follow-up episode where you break our hearts, but I hope, hope not to post that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting till the day the card arrives. But it'll be a, you'll, you may see a post of that, that card somewhere. Um, well, as we say in America, bienvenidos. Heard that before. <laughs>